The Origins Podcast is now a part of the Origins Project Foundation. Please consider supporting the podcast and the foundation by going to www.originsprojectfoundation.org. Hello, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. In this episode, I have the wonderful opportunity to have had a discussion with Ian McEwen, who's surely one of the greatest writers in the English language, also one of the most erudite and well-informed writers, with a broad spectrum of books on a, on a wide variety of topics. One of the things that's always attracted me to Ian's writing, besides the clarity and beauty of the writing and, and ingenuity of some of the plots, is the fact that Ian epitomizes the artist who's also interested in science. Many of his books involve scientific questions, uh, climate change, nature of science, in many, many different ways. And I thought it'd be a fun chance to have a conversation with him about that relationship between art and science, and also the deeper questions, because I know he's interested in, in, in overcoming myth and superstition. Recently, when we carried out this conversation, actually a while ago, before the pandemic, at his home in London, uh, he had just come out with a new book, that was a takeoff in some sense of Franz Kafka's book. Um, it's called The Cockroach, which is not about a man turning into a, an insect, but rather an insect turning into a man, with clearly satirical references to what was ha- going on and what is still going on with Brexit. So the conversation remains topical and prescient, and it was a true pleasure to spend time again with Ian, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did having the conversation. With no further ado, Here is Ian McEwen. Ian, thank you for having us in your abode here. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you again. Well, it's very nice to have you. I want to begin with your origin story. This is an origins podcast, and so I want to go back and I want to ask, first, your Childhood was spent all over the world, a lot of it in East Asia. What kind of impact has that had, do you think, on, on your worldview or your writing? Do you think it would have been very different if you'd been brought up a, an English schoolboy? Well, I'm a post-war baby, and my father was a soldier, and I grew up in um, the remains of a shrinking empire. <laughs> so um, basically, that was Singapore. Mm-hmm. Then North Africa, where we had a tiny contingent of British soldiers, a very large American air base. Oh. Uh, and from there, I was sent to boarding school in, in, in England. So by the time I was 11, that was over, those, those wandering years. And most of my memories devolve around North Africa. So that always gave me um, a love of deserts, of uh, the Mediterranean light and heat, uh, a respect for old-fashioned Islam. Uh-huh. Uh, the, uh, and actually, I traveled much later in Afghanistan, and it was a wonderful sort of return. This was before uh, before, the, before the sort of Saudi forms of uh, Wahhabism uh, came around, but sort of deeply entrenched, so deep that people hardly knew it. I mean, it was sort of in their bloodstream, deeply courteous, uh, Homeric hospitality, um, and uh, sort of uh, it gave me a great... For all my feelings about religion, I have to say that I respect um, sort of that old-fashioned core of Islam. 
I guess it it was less the entrancing nature of foreign places as being away from England ah. and uh, watching my father, who's by the time I was born, he was a sergeant. He then became a an officer. He changed from being in a figure of the sergeant's mess <laughs> to a figure in the officer's mess. My mother was always very conscious of this, class <laughs> conscious. So. She was happy in the uh, sergeant's mess. She was socially uneasy talking to the colonel's wife, and she sort of would be dropping her H's and uh-huh. being very, very careful. And, and actually all my father's military officer friends were all men from the working class who had moved up. Oh, I see. And the younger officers who were of higher rank had gone to Sandhurst, our military, our West Point, uh, were another group. So all my chums, their dads had all come up through the ranks. At the age of 11, I was sent off to a boarding school in England that was, it was a state boarding school. It was a grammar school, which meant that the kids had to reach a certain educational attainment at the age of 11. And they were all drawn from working class families from central London. And the idea was to give working class kids or kids from broken homes. So there are a scattering of bohemian families there too. But to give mostly working class kids the possibilities of a first class private education, such as they might get at Eton. Mm. And it worked. There are 330 boys, a beautiful Palladian mansion, huge grounds in a remote part of the countryside overlooking a glorious tidal river. I was deeply miserable there. I was 2,000 miles away (laughs) from home. I didn't cry. I just went quiet. You know, I just, and I never raised my hand. I didn't speak to anyone unless I had to in class. And that lasted three or four years. But I was a child of the 50s, and we had no language to describe emotions. I didn't even know I was happy, unhappy. I didn't have the language for it. I never said ever in my life, I'm unhappy. It would never have crossed my mind. Um, and in my letters home, I would write, you know, we had egg and chips for tea and built beat, beat Norwich 11-3 at rugby and I got kicked in the shin. No, I wouldn't say I got kicked in the shin. I'd say, <laughs> Your mother might worry. I'm limping, I might say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even when the Cuban Missile Crisis came and there were many big American air bases quite near. So, you know, we knew. But you didn't go under your desks like the Americans. We didn't have duck and cover. <laughs> Uh, we have much had an English resolve to roast. That was was our ambition. So even then, I was writing home saying, dear mum, it was fish and chips for tea, while the bigger boys were telling us, the world's going to end. We're going to have a fallout nuclear war and we'll be the first to go. So I thought I mustn't upset my parents. (laughs) So uh, round about the age of 15 or 16, a teacher who's still alive to this day uh, told me, um, that I was clever. And this had an extraordinary effect oh, on me. Oh, yes. Having been informed that I was clever, I started to be clever. And roughly the same time, I started reading passionately poetry and fiction. I started listening to a lot of music. These kids from central London were very streetwise. Yeah. When I arrived there in 1959, they were all listening to Chuck Berry. So when cover versions of Chuck Berry came in the Beatles' early albums or the Rolling Stones' early albums, we all just thought, what terrible, roll over Beethoven, come on. <laughs> so I adapted and adopted these, these attitudes to myself. 
So when the Rolling Stones did a cover version of Carol on their first album, we thought, ah, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so they were really um, wised up kids. The whole atmosphere of the place was very sort of can-do um, and classless. And I say this in connection with my travels abroad, that it was one more kind of interesting separation from the usual uh, structures of, of English class life. And the third element in my origins, as it were, was then to go not to Oxford or Cambridge, which would have been my obvious destination. Yes. I was a very bright older boy. I was surprised to see you had. Uh, I went to Sussex mm-hmm. University. And then it was a really interesting radical place. Uh, it was called Balliol by the Sea by the newspapers because so many um, teachers came from Merton and Balliol in yeah. Oxford. Yeah. And they wished to redraw the map of learning. Asa Briggs, the historian, was its first uh, vice-chancellor. So all the kids arriving in the very first uh, term had to read three books. You would never, if I gave you a thousand years, you would never guess what they were. It was Turner's thesis on the expansion of the American West, Jacob Burkhart's um, Civilization of the Renaissance, and R.H. Tawney's Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. And the fundamental idea was you could not study the humanities unless you had first studied the history of history, historiography. And then, as well as the usual survey course in English, and I was also doing French, I had courses, a lovely seminar on um, quantum mechanics for liberal arts know-nothings. I was going to ask about Um, that. A one-on-one with a very eminent uh, barrister, uh, Peter Calva Caressi on international relations. And he'd been a barrister at the Nuremberg trials. He um, was at some connection with MI6. I think then he was, Peng- he he- was headed Penguin Books much later. I had courses on European literature, which was very important for me. I first read Kafka and Thomas Mann there. Um, and philosophy, as well as all the Shakespeare. And for three years, I wrote two or three essays a week. It was a very intense writing course. And although I still had this lingering worry that I should have gone to Cambridge or I should have mm. gone to Oxford, uh, actually, it was brilliant. It was the best thing for you. And that too gave me a, a slight sort of um, apartness mm-hmm. from the usual run of things. A, a vague sense of exile, both the childhood, the school... And, and the university education. And do you think that's colored you the idea of not sort of being, of trying to not always be part of the establishment? It's hard. I mean, it just creeps up on yeah, you. It creeps I've up become on it. You. Yeah, know, yeah. I've become a member. There's no way of dodging it. Uh, but absolutely, the first 20, 30 years of my life. Um, and I've always avoided sitting on committees, you know, on for the for art galleries, famous art galleries, or... I generally not a committee person, I'm, so I'm not a joiner in that sense. Uh, I haven't joined any political parties either. You had to write a few essays, uh, two or three essays a, a month. Did you say a week? A week. Okay, yeah. excellent. I mean, yeah. I I felt I learned how to write from history class because yeah. it was an incredibly intense course when I was in high school, in high school uh, which actually is more intense than at university, where we had to write mm-hmm. essays constantly and. And when people ask me about how to learn how to write, I, I, I tell them that the only way is to just keep writing and, and yeah. write a lot. And I don't know if that's your advice to young writers or not. But Well, writing to a deadline 
um, which I did from the age of 16, because we were writing two essays a week in the last two years of school, uh, was very important. So it was no, it was no big change for me coming to university and having to just keep to that deadline of, I mean, these were not giant essays, yeah, but yeah, 1500 but... words. Um, and you know, you had to read a book on Tuesday, yeah. uh, think about it on Wednesday and write about it on, by the end of the week, you know, when you, and it was very, very useful, um, in that respect. I mean, I, I know that um, there are many university courses now in Britain where the kids just write a long essay once y- a year or yeah. maybe twice a year. That does not give them a, a great um, basis, I think, on on um, thinking clearly and quickly, especially for journalism, actually. It's a great training. Well, the, okay, the other aspect that hit, hit me when you're talking about this is that I, when I was trying to guess what three books you were going to mention... And I was reasonably certain none of them would be a science book. And I was right. Yeah, and, and, right. And, but I was happy to see you took this sort of quantum mechanics for poets class or whatever it was called. Um, but it saddens me to think uh, because, and we'll get, uh, I want to talk to you about two cultures yeah. a little bit, but that this notion that being educated means reading the books you did and not reading Galileo or, or, or someone else. Uh, sure. What sure. do you think about that? If you were redoing it, would you include a science book? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the British educational system was such, well, actually, no, it's the English educational uh, system is such that at the age of 16, you have to make, make a choice. Yeah. And kids arrive at university quite specialised in, you know, so um, when I was 18 and starting at Sussex, I knew the survey from Chaucer to Mm-hmm. to Elliot, I mean, okay. T.S., that is. Yeah. But at the age of 16, I didn't know whether I should do physics, biology, chemistry, and math, or English, French, history, and whatever. <laughs> and the physics teacher was very keen to have me do physics. Oh. And I had the English teacher, this rather charismatic mm-hmm. um, English teacher, on my other side. And they were like uh, two devils speaking mm-hmm. in my ear, or two angels, however you like it. And I finally chose, I took six months, I honestly had no idea I wanted to do both. That was not possible, the school was too small for that. I chose English largely because the English teacher was so charismatic. They're always the charismatic ones, English teachers. And so many novelists have an English teacher lurking Mm -hmm. behind them. And he was of that uh, Levis school of thinking about literature. And behind it lay a, a notion that there was nothing more important than the study and exposition and critical thinking about, about literature. And the rest was sort of froth, basically. <laughs> and by the time I was 17, I, re- I had an almost religious sense that I had a religious duty uh-huh. to go to university, do an English degree and then teach English or do a PhD mm-hmm. and then teach English. It was beyond even a passion. I rather resembled the Muslims I admired in North Africa. It just was who I was. And it gave me a certain degree of arrogance. I thought that anyone who hadn't read and understood the wasteland was really not worth talking to. (laughs) I was sort of unbearable about it. But I still had, I still kept reading the science. Yeah. Um, I remember reading when I was 16, Asimov's, it's a book called River of Blood, Uh The River of Blood. It was just about the bloodstream. Um, Books like that, Penguin Specials, blue books that would fit in your pocket. And at Sussex, yes, I had my first encounter with quantum mechanics. One of the courses at Sussex, very popular and great course, was called 
Darwin, Marx, and Freud. Uh-huh. I mean, that was my first encounter with with Darwin. But most of the teachers there were far more interested in Marx. Yeah, sure. And then, I mean, Darwin um, would have been a great choice for one of the three. Well, they were all three books seen as th- three of the great demoters of, yeah. of human beings from their centrality yeah, sure. in the universe, yeah. economic and biological. And in terms of the three books that you might give undergraduates or t- coming in to read, Darwin might have been a it t- might have easily replaced perhaps the emergence of capitalism. Yeah, or, but I, you know. I at least was familiar with the time I left Sussex with the last few pages, <laughs> which are the best pages. Yeah, anyway. that's right. The most you know, poetic the, pages. The, you know, the, that hedgerow. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, and cycling, as the was cycling on. So, although I was always looking back in my early 20s, uh, uh, thinking, should I now go and do a, a, a physics degree? I knew by my mid 20s that my ceiling would have been mathematics. But there was a moment when, uh, in the middle of a class on Chaucer, uh, the maths teacher came in and said, I can get all of you through A-level maths. Uh, so who wants to do it? And we all just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was great. Um, and it was a very important origins moment for uh-huh. me because he said, okay, we're going to go at, at the speed of the slowest. Anything you don't understand, put up your hand and we'll do it again. And we, he took us through, this is what really lives in my memory, the calculus. Mm-hmm. Not simply how to operate it, a moving yeah, system, sure, sure. but how Leibniz and Newton invented right. it. So we actually understood how it worked. And I honestly don't think for all the thinking I've done, uh, and courses, all the rest of the stuff I did at university. Um, this moment at school was my full appreciation of some kind of intellectual ceiling that I had. I grasped the calculus, but if I blinked, it was gone. And I knew that actually I'd be finished as a f- physicist. Uh, but it did give me a huge appreciation of people who who could read Dirac's mm-hmm. equation, uh, who could do the mathematics, or who could think in sort of statistical, dynamical mm-hmm. terms that I couldn't. And it gave me a respect for for the fact that m- anyone with a minimal intelligence can get a good degree in English. Because <laughs> there's nothing difficult. You, know, um, you write you could, about that. You fact. can either write well or you can't, but, that, but still, if you can write sufficiently, mm-hmm. you can do a three-year course get up every day at 2 p.m., <laughs> um, panic before an essay, and get through. You cannot do this. I mean, my two sons went to university, one to do social sciences, one to do biology. The biologists were at their first class at UCL, just around the corner here, <laughs> at 9 a.m. Their last class was at 6. They were in on Saturdays for half a day of practicals. My other son, well, you know, he lived the same <laughs> life <laughs> that I did. Um, a quarter of an education. But you did make an important point that you got, you made it through math though with yeah, that teacher. Because a lot of people say to me that, well, I just, I just can't do math. And I think yeah. the point is that people can do math. It's hard work. And mm. if you work it carefully and work hard enough, yeah. it's like many things. I mean, you might not be a virtuoso pianist, but if you work very hard, you can, yeah. you can, pl- you can play. What surprised me, I did a degree in physics and math. And to some extent, I had the same pro- issue as you. I wanted to write. I did history, and I tried to decide which to do. Yeah. In the end, I, I did a, a physics and math degree and took a, a year off working on a history book. But so I sort of, but I knew I was going to go back. 
But what surprised me was the mathematicians couldn't do physics, which which may surprise you. Couldn't do physics. Couldn't do physics. That they that they. I used to think it would be trivial for them because because I I tried to decide what I would be, and again I had a ceiling. I I did very well in mathematics, but I in physics I could see beyond, and math I could do everything I was asked to do, but I felt I couldn't see where I was going to go next, and I thought to the mathematicians who I knew who were excellent mathematicians, that the physics would be trivial. And I was very surprised to see that they had a hard time with even introductory physics, which may, which may surprise you. I, I was very surprised myself. Well, I, I'd love to flatter myself to think that I'd be more of an Einstein than a David Hilbert <laughs> or a, a Grossman or, um, you know, the, the, or Reisman or whatever, yeah. you know, that I could imagine someone in a free fall lift yeah. and think. But then, I, then I'd have to come running to... The nearest mathematician <laughs> say, can you give expression to this thought? But uh, who knows? Okay, we well, sort of answered the question I was thinking about, which is which is why literature and why not? Why aren't you a scientist? Because I, you know, science seems to me to be a a big part of of many of your books. And in, in there are science themes, and not and not just in books like Solar, which is about a scientist, or or machines like me, which is about AI, but. Um, a child in time. Uh, the 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 wife of 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 the protagonist's best friend is a, is a physicist. And there's a book you wrote. Uh, I guess uh, during enduring love. love. Enduring mm-hmm. love. Yeah, enduring love. Where where the again protagonist at least is a science writer. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And you go back to that a lot. Is that in some sense a reflection of your continuing interest in science? Well, if we draw back from this, what is what is science? It's, yeah. To me, it's organized curiosity. Uh, so when people say to me sometimes in public uh, Q&As, why are you interested in science? And it's as if they're saying, well, it's all very well, <laughs> numismatics, but um, you know, is, is it already that important? And I say, well, actually, I'm less interested in science. I'm just interested in the world. And, and, and what is the basis of our understanding of the world? And I would always say to such a person, you are already most likely deeply immersed in scientific understanding of the world. You think the sun goes around the earth. You think that uh, things at a quantum level are very different from how we see them here. You think the universe is uh, consists of um, millions, if not billions, of galaxies, and we're in just mm-hmm. one, and it's vast. This is only a recent discovery. So all these things, you think that uh, germs cause disease, I mean, you just have to stop and think the extent to which you are thinking scientifically about the world. So if you're writing a novel, I can't see how you keep it out. I don't have a... For me, it's not a special thing. It is just curiosity. When the thunder rumbles, we do not think the giants are fighting in the sky. Most of us. Most of us. (laughs) Um, My dog probably thinks that. Yeah. uh, The the giants fighting in the sky. So I, I don't really want to make a special case. Mm-hmm. I, I just think if we're going to talk about human nature or people uh, moving in a plausibly shared environment, they generally in my novels until recently, they obeyed the laws of physics. Yeah. It might, it's worth knowing some of those laws. So uh, I make no special case for it. And I, I'm more baffled by those who aren't interested in science. They, yeah. I feel they're the ones who have to explain themselves. Yeah, but why science is like such a, it's such an, a, a strange question that I've, I've 
been asked about various people why were they interested in science and exactly why, yeah. how could you it's a very it's a very modern thing and what you know to be an educated gentleman in england in the in 1900 was you, you really we it would have been unthinkable i think not to have some conversational understanding of 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 what was going on in science i'm not sure that's true nowadays Actually, I'm not so sure. In 1900, you or certainly in 1850, an educated gentleman would know Latin and Greek. Yeah, yeah. Still, even that late, yeah. even while people were beginning to think of, um, you know, in terms of um, second law of thermodynamics, yeah. um, most people were not aware of it. So, Most people oh, still yeah. aren't. I think. I mean, I think you yeah, over us well, when you talk about people knowing there are millions or billions of galaxies. I think you were also surprisingly would be surprised. I think by. But but people's worldview has changed more than they realize. Yeah, that's, what I, exactly. that's my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and mm-hmm. and it's it's thoroughly ingrained in, in everything, mm-hmm. in the way. Just the fact that even the simple thing that the universe has a beginning is not just a religious notion; it's now a scientific one. And and uh, and mm-hmm. that was not the case eighty years ago, by the way, in science. Well, anyone who's on the subway and uh, someone is sneezing into their face and <laughs> turns away and doesn't breathe in, yeah. Um, yeah. understands the, the, the germ theory of disease, exactly. which is a very recent discovery. Yeah. So there are all kinds of ways in which we are saturated. And every, now that we all have these incredibly complex machines that we've learned to think, learned to think digitally about, yeah. uh, that's drawn us into. And so much public policy now is yeah. impacted by um, genetics and or, or machine intelligence and so on. So, and will be more. So, so there are many who, who, who might resist it, but they've, they've got to operate in, in the world. And uh, I think it's actually very likely that more and more people will understand the basics. Well, uh, you know, I, it, before I go off this topic, there's one thing I was going to ask you. I read somewhere that you originally p- thought atonement would be a science fiction. You thought of making a science fiction book. And I would thought, how could you? I was fascinated with that statement so i don't know whether oh well i didn't i didn't um get much further than thinking that the first chapter was the beginning oh okay so it had a premise mm-hmm. uh i used to keep this a secret but now i've sort of given, <laughs> given up on that i thought this is a novel set in the 23rd century uh-huh. when elites have turned away from technology they're tired of it and they wish to live in the manner of a Jane Austen squirearchy. Mm. And so they play the harpsichord and they live in big country houses and they send notes by messenger and they ride horses uh, and technology and science is left to the working class. And uh, it, it was going to be an illicit love affair between a, a girl of such a, an elite background and the gardener who has got um, the whole of the internet is immediately available to his brain. He's got diodes um, <laughs> and... I got to the end of this chapter and I thought, this is going to be such a terrible novel. <laughs> so I took the diodes out of his head. I went back to the beginning uh, and wrote a completely different novel, but still using this girl who uh, collects wildflowers in the first chapter and mm-hmm. is trying to avoid the gardener. But that's how it started. I mean, oh. And then I just, I just oh, went off in a different direction. Oh, that, I'm so glad I learned that. As in science so in literature, and, and we might talk about yeah. their parallels, it's worth making, you've got to make mistakes. Absolutely. And just as in science, all kinds of terrible cul-de-sacs are closed off by whole careers, uh, and it's a great service, 
So for novelists, sometimes you've got to plunge into an error before you find your way. It's not just novelists, science, it's everyone. And, yeah. I, I, and, and I've, I've said it many times that I think it's something we don't do enough is teach kids how to fail effectively in school. Yeah, and appreciate all the people who have, have failed. I mean, you think back to when Aristotle was in Lesbos looking at the lagoon for two years. He's wrong about almost everything. I agree. But he was wrong in the right way in that... <laughs> He's probably the first person we know of who thought that it was worth staring at things for days on end and watching their life cycles. But you know, it might not have occurred to anyone in civilization to even walk past that lagoon and say, I could spend two years looking at all the creatures. Yeah. So he gets one huge thing right in order then to that get many the, things wrong. Yeah, I guess that, that, well, now you've changed my appreciation a little bit because I've always sort of argued against Aristotle for a variety, probably I was, because I was brought up in Galileo, I kind of thought of Aristotle as a foil, but but the fact that he didn't look at some things, the fact that mm. when people tell me, you know, quote Aristotle in one way or another, and, and the fact that he, he said women and men had a different number of teeth, and it would have been easy to stare into the mouth and check that. Yeah. But that's easily balanced by the fact he, he paid attention yeah, to sure. something for two years. And the simple fact is that it was much easier to make a science of the heavens mm. than, than of life. Life is so infinitely more complex than the planets and the moons and the stars. So most of our scientific advance for 2,000 years was simply looking in the sky. We even now are staggered by the complexity of, of a single cell. I mean, it's a vast factory. It would take you, you know, 20 years to run around it, as it were, if it were blown up yeah. and, and know what's going on. So the chances of getting anything right in, in Aristotle's time were minimal. Mm -hmm. I mean, because he had no microscope uh, and very little understanding of how anything worked. But the fact is, he was our first biologist. He looked. Yes. So, I mean... We got to give him credit. This is just the nature of mistakes. Yeah, sure. And and uh, I often find when I'm writing a book, well, and well, I can ask you this now. I mean, it's it's almost like a grant proposal. I, I write a proposal of the book I'm going to write, but once I start, it ends up taking a life of its own, and and mm. and and I discover that what I thought would be the right direction isn't. And I assume that happens a lot more in a novel. But oh, absolutely. I mean, the the thing that I value most is the self-generated surprise of finding something at half past 10 in the morning that you had no idea of at nine o'clock. And most of writing for me is, is a pursuit of freedom. In other words, there are certain things that provide opportunities that open up the world and even whole subjects, as it were. Of, you know, I have no idea what my next novel would be. If someone came from the future and said, it's called The Cockroach or machines like me and i was five years back i, I would be completely amazed well that would be it would be sad if you knew i mean that's the well, one of the quite, wonderful yeah. things about life is that but you don't know what you're to be sad and also somewhat absurd <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the pleasures of discovery yeah uh, are i think some of the most um profound in in, in writing well i want to i want to move away but i can't resist asking you one one question because i i um if it's not obvious, you're one of my favorite writers. But but uh, I've asked another one of my a friend of mine who's, who's who I admire greatly as a writer, Cormac McCarthy. Yes. Um, but and Cor Cormac says, and I don't know if it's true, but he says that in his reading now, 
he doesn't read literature. He reads science almost exclusively. When, yeah. and, and, and I'm wondering, uh, you're incredibly widely read, but in your reading, what's the ratio of sort of nonfiction versus fiction and maybe science versus literature now? Obviously, when you're younger, it was a matter yeah. of building up a, a vocabulary and a knowledge of the, of the base of English literature, but now? Now, um, well, I'm 71 and I have limited time here. So I have a very powerful hunger to be informed about the world. And it's not only about science. I mean, history, history. too, um, and biography. So I, I read a lot of nonfiction. But I keep with the fiction too. Partly it's rereading, going back. I mean, you carry around these opinions of a mm. book that you read 40 years ago. You remember nothing about it except your opinion. <laughs> Uh, and it's great to reread. To be reread is every writer's greatest desire. Unless uh, a work of fiction is very, very short, it's very hard to hold its structure in your mind anyway mm. on first reading because everything is just unfolding almost like life. It is the book of life. But a rereading gives you an understanding of the architecture of a book. So there's that pleasure too. But I still read fiction. I mean, I still read new fiction to me. If it, by the way, if it's your greatest dream, I was I was going to say I, I feel like I've taken a, a McEwen course in the last in the last six weeks I've either read or reread eight of your books to be for this and it's been really interesting to re read them again. It's I thought you looked rather pale. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another aspect before we actually go into. I, I I'm not a literary critic, but I want to talk a little bit about some commonalities that I find having done this intensive mm -hmm. episode, which is fun to do. I mean, it's not. It's not something I would do generally, and it's kind of fun to do be, uh, to try and look for to read so many things and to try and look for commonalities. But there are two other aspects that I, I think I want to touch on that you've experienced as a writer, and that is notions of censorship and mob rule. I mean, if I think of your experience, so if I understand it right, you had a a story, um, solid geometry. Oh, way on. back, yeah. way back. I'm going mm. way back now. Yeah. But, but which was being produced by the BBC, and then they cancelled yeah. it because of supposed obscenity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this must have been about 1978. Mm. It was based on one of my short stories, Solid Geometry. Its narrator has um, what was then considered to be one of the largest penises in the world <laughs> um, in formaldehyde in a jar. <laughs> he bought it in an auction. Um, and in a row with his girlfriend, um, it gets hold at the wall and, and slithers down. And I actually wanted the camera shot. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Uh, and it was a, there was a bit of rumpus at the time, but, you know, um, and then I was asked on all kinds of panels about uh, censorship of Eastern European writers. And I said, I cannot possibly be confused <laughs> with what's going on. In the Soviet Empire, yeah. you know, this is you know I'm, I live I've, I'm free. This is just a sexual prurience matter. Please don't. Let's not try and make out that we're up there with them in in the oppression stakes. So I I was quite firm about that. I didn't care that much about it. It it was a cause. But and then many years later, maybe only ten years ago, the BBC recommissioned it. Um, and it played, and no one noticed. Oh, really? Okay. I was going to say it's kind of. Fa I mean, it's it wasn't still even very interesting, even to me. It's somehow that you can't you can't 
see a penis on TV, but you can see a, a, a knife being thrust into someone's body. Somehow, yeah. one seems more obscene than the other. No, you can't see a penis being thrust into someone's body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. A knife is fine. You know, you've been called out at various times, and I don't want to... But one I, I, I thought was interesting, in terms of you got a prize from Israel, and, and yeah. you went, and and there was an outcry. And I think it's worth discussing that for a little little while. The, the Because we're living in this... Um, you know, to some extent, cancel world of, of of shutting out those things we don't like. And um, my my late friend Stephen Hawking, who I'm sure you knew, yeah. you criticized him for refusing to go to Israel. I wish he went. I wish he'd gone. Yeah, I didn't criticize him very strongly. I just sort of regretted he changed his mind. Yeah, um, and he backed off largely because of pressure um, from the usual quarters. But those quarters never mind. Um, you know when a writer goes to Iran and be you know um, where uh, unspeakable cruelties take place against people who don't fall in line with the mullahs, or um, or many other countries. Um, my interest really was generated by literature. That there are <clears throat> some Israeli writers I really wanted to see in situ. One of those is David Grossman. The other was Amos Oz. There was Bully Yoshua. And these are among many people who, in Israel who represent an old commutarian, open-minded mm-hmm. notion of what Israel could have been. And I think now is looking almost impossible that the it old ever will. Yeah, and um, I think it would have been really possible f- if their spirit had prevailed to make an Israel much more inclusive. And um, what about that argument? Um, maybe I mean, cause it depends on how important you think you are, but but um, that it's important to also go to places where you disagree to try and open up. I mean, uh, well, I gave my lecture and I criticized uh, the Israeli government. I criticized Hamas um, also uh, after my lecture. I mean, I'd already had tension with the mayor of Jerusalem, um, his man broke up. And he was coming over to sort of tell me yet again how wrong I was. But Shimon Perez got there before him, <laughs> got right in front of me and gave me a big bear hug. And he said, I wish I'd write this speech myself. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so I felt no way. You, okay. And um, I don't like the idea of stopping uh, Israeli academics coming to study here or to teach here or lecture here. Uh, especially when we have Chinese students, yeah, Chinese yeah. academics, we have people from all kinds of countries um, that have committed gross human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. You cannot confuse the population of a country with its with its regimes or its governments. Absolutely. And you really need to separate those out. And it's very important to recognise that, the, that, that there was still, at least in 2011... Uh, a very strong conscience in Israel that needed that contact. I don't know where we've headed now. I mean, yeah. I think we now, with the recent um, expropriation of land um, on the West Bank, I th- I think there's no way back to that soft spot. It's, it's hard to imagine how they we're going to get back there easily. Uh, but separating people from their governments is a really, you know, it really hit me. Before I was in Vietnam it was a con- physics conference. They were trying to bring Vietnam back into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. It was 1995. I was there to see a solar eclipse as well. But um, I was shocked. I went to, when I was there, I went to a museum called the Museum of American Atrocities. Right. And 
And for the moment I arrived, I was amazed at how everyone was friendly. Everyone had a relative in the United States. But in the Museum of Atrocities, they made a big point of showing Americans protesting the Vietnam War and separating Americans from the American government. And it never, that subtlety that they'd been able to do that was really, for a country that where we Mm. killed so many people, ultimately, was was incredibly generous and gracious. I was very surprised Mm. by that. Yeah, we need to keep these lines open. Um, Absolutely. Well, look, now I want to I want to move move on to some general impressions I have from reading. And as I say, I'm hesitant because I certainly don't think of myself as a literary critic and I don't want to. There was a quote of yours I've read, which wasn't in a book, but it seemed to me that if I tried to think of one theme that I thought was touched on in every book you've written in different ways, which we'll go into. It, it's a quote you, you, you wrote uh, in a discussion of your one of your last books. And it said, we know what we are. We know we're deficient because we know what we should be. And when I thought about that, it seemed to me that every protagonist in some way, in every one of your books, and in some ways suffers from that, that dichotomy between what they are and what they know they should be. And so I wanted you to comment on that quote a little bit. I mean, I, I've had a long interest in all the things that ultimately I found in one book, Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, yeah. where every single cognitive defect you can think of has a rather elegant name. One of the earliest ones I remember reading in evolutionary psychology um, was self-persuasion. And self-persuasion is a wonderful subject for a novelist um its basis was of course that if you want to deceive someone else it's best to first deceive yourself Mm -hmm. and then you'll be a much more convincing liar (laughs) or persuader once i'd read about self-persuasion it became one of my ways of understanding how my characters could work that they they could talk themselves into places uh, and then become all the more effective uh, in doing that. We all do that, right? I mean, I think we, that's what we have to do to make it through every single day. Yes, and there are all kinds of, you know, Danny lists some wonderful yeah. in his book, all the biases to which yeah. we're subject to. And so the possibility of slowly, generation after generation, devising thinking machines or machines that appear to think that we would slowly purge of all these biases would raise very important, difficult, awkward problems. How would we live alongside people better than us, as it were, artificial people who would be better than us, who don't have all our cognitive defects, all those confirmation biases and all the rest of them, and self-persuasion problems? Uh, And that was really the basis for writing machines like me. What would it like to be to have an intimate relationship with a machine that did not have all those sort of deep-rooted problems that seem to be wired in, you know, the little kinds of uh, slack we cut for ourselves in all kinds of situations, which we would not cut for others. And so crucially in that novel, the issue is revenge. Yes. A woman commits uh, a revenge, lies to the police, lies to the court in order, and she has a very good goal, Yes. to get uh, a man to go to prison who, who otherwise wouldn't, but clearly should. And uh, my thinking machine, my AI robot, Adam, says quite legitimately, you cannot run a 
justice system that does not respect the rule of law. And lying to the court and lying to the police is against the law, and so you must go to prison. And by the way, you said you would pay any price to get that man in prison. Here's the price. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got very fond of asking readers where they stand, and most people think that she was right to lie and send an innocent man, innocent as charged, she sets up a situation in which he's, he seems to have raped her when he didn't, but he had raped her best yeah. friend and caused her suicide. Um, and it's, it's been interesting to me that I thought it was going about two to one, you know, most people not wanting Miranda to go to jail, thinking she was on a perfectly reasonable assumption of uh, revenge being correct. Now I'm finding that it is two to one, three to one. They, so our slack that we cut for Miranda uh, to abandon the rule of law and not go to prison because this is a special case. How do we write the code for lying or lying appropriately? So you go to visit your best friend who's dying and you say, you're looking a bit better today. That's a reasonable lie. Very hard to write the code for that. Or a far more trivial example, your wife, your lover goes to the hairdresser and they make a complete <laughs> screw up of it. And you say, it looks fine. <laughs> Honestly, believe me, it looks fine. Again, that's why I take the quote from Kipling. This, yeah, you know, we never say, tell a lie. Yeah, the quote so, from Kipling is, but that starts your book. But remember, please, the law by which we live. We're not built to comprehend a lie. That was from his book, The Secret of Machines. So Kipling was writing long before any sort of digital awareness of how you might encode a machine. He's thinking of industrial machinery. But still, if we're going to have beings from whom we erase all our cognitive defects, we still have a huge problem of, of allowing them to operate frictionlessly in a, in a human social world where even the most moral people routinely tell lies because they understand the feelings of others. Now, it might be possible to write those algorithms. I have no, no. idea. You have to tell me. Well, I, But it, I think it's a, it's a stretch. Well, interestingly, there's a, there's a flip side to that, which I think is clearly that's driving you. And it's an interesting question that we have to pose to people who are thinking about programming artificial intelligence. But the, the challenges to doing that are many. It's not just, uh, and and you talk about them in the book. It's not just this question of human values, which, but mm. it's also the question that the public, I think, thinks that we are on the verge yeah. of general AI any minute, and 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 don't realize that it's still. I'm not sure if it's the case. The last time I ran a meeting on AI, they had yet to have a company that could effectively teach a robot how to fold laundry. Sure. And and of course one of the one of the protagonists in the in the in the book is is, is Turing, who's a, who of course in this imaginary world has survived and lived on and became basically the the founder of general AI and and and, mm. and he says he talks about their experience and I'll read it. He said, then we settled down to serious artificial intelligence, and this is the point of my story. At the start, we thought we were within 10 years of replicating the human brain, which, by the way, is something we daily hear. But every tiny problem we solved, a million others would pop up. Have you have any idea what it takes to catch a ball or raise a cup to your lips or make immediate sense of a word, a phrase or ambiguous sentence? We didn't, not at first. 
Solving maths problems is the tiniest fraction of what human intelligence does. We learn from a new angle just how wondrous a thing the brain is. A one-liter, liquid-cooled, three-dimensional computer. Unbelievable processing power, unbelievably compressed, unbelievable energy efficiency, no overheating, the whole thing running on 25 watts, one dim light bulb. And I thought that 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 paragraph captures succinctly the challenge that I think most people don't realize mm. uh, that faces... I, I keep thinking that AI is somewhat like fusion. It's always 25 years it's 40, in the future. I think it's 40 years. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. The trouble is, and as I say on the first page of the novel, introducing, because this is an ancient dream, y- yes. that fiction and TV dramas, Westworld, humans, etc., uh, have presented these things, these entities, these uh, people that are indistinguishable from humans, artificial people. Uh, so they're almost boring. I mean, you know, it was a bit, it, it's a larger scale version of virtual reality, which I remember reading about in the early 90s. Sure. Bring it on. Where is it? Yeah. You know, so only now is it sort of available. And in fact, when you put it on, you feel sick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Try skiing down. Uh, Vesuvius or whatever they <laughs> so it's AI which interested me in the late 70s mm-hmm. when I wrote a play for television called The Imitation Game based on Turing's paper uh, in which the characters are talking in a Turing like manner at Bletchley mm-hmm. can a machine think uh, and I have stayed with the long boring disappointment of AI <laughs> Ever since, it's only recently, um, in the last 10 years, that maybe some things began to turn and it was very interesting, the match against the Go Master mm-hmm. and then the, the chess games where the computers only knew the rules, weren't just number crunching, yeah. all of that. And Demis Asabis came around here one evening and we had a sort of wonderful kind of conversation about this. And for, but, for, for people, he's the founder of DeepMind, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. just walking yeah. down the road at King's Cross who also has a walk-on part here. Mm-hmm. But it took neuroscience to tell us the story mm-hmm. of how complex the brain is. Uh, and that's an unfolding story. And uh, I noticed that, that now people are talking about, let's have AI as a black box. We, we could maybe imitate all the wiring of the human brain, still not understand how it works, but set it running. Except we can't do it on 25 <laughs> watts. We'd need, you know... The vast amount. Yeah. I mean, the, the the power of a sort of bit mind. I, I worked it out as a physicist once. I mean, one of the reasons I argue that we're so far away is, mm. it, I mean, the complexity of doing simple tasks is one thing, but the the energetics is truly yeah. almost magical. Yeah. If you try to think, given what we do now, it's clear. What's very clear is that you can't make a human being like an electronic computer because if you just did that and you mesh processors together at current power rates. Yeah. I worked out to have the processing power of anything like the human brain would require 10 terawatts, which is the amount of energy all of humanity uses. Yeah. And, and, and this is 25 watts. So there's a factor of not, it's not just a factor of a few, it's a factor of a million million. Yeah. yeah. Or not a million million, a hundred million. Closing that gap is going to be Mm. remarkable. Well, we mustn't beat ourselves up. We've, we, we, we've been on this maybe 80 years mm-hmm. and evolution's had 4 billion. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, uh, um, and the trial and error there has been extraordinary. The results are amazing. But we do have a head start in that we can 
understand maybe the brain of a fruit fly a little bit anyway and see what 100,000 neurons can do. Uh, but th- what's so interesting about this is building a human, an artificial human, is such an ancient dream. It's in Prometheus. Yeah. We see it in Jason and the Argonauts with that 30-foot robot. Adam and Eve is, for me, a story about AI. <laughs> so you have a, a super intelligence that builds uh, first one, but then another one, um, a replica of itself. Uh, it's an extraordinary story, the Garden of Eden. If we just come back to science for a moment, what is the great sin? Not just <laughs> disobedience, it's curiosity. It's curiosity, yeah, exactly. Uh, that propels, I mean, the saddest moment in Milton's Paradise Lost, the final uh, lines about, and so they may slowly make their way out of paradise. Yes. Um, is this the story of the end of hunter-gatherers and the beginning of agriculture? I don't know. But it's also a story, I think, of creating something in your own image. Well, except, except that that's why, one of the reasons why the story is so bad, I think, the enemy story, because, because your story is about the whole seduction, which I want to read a quote from you, is to create an, a, 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 a copy that's better. Yeah. Clearly, God's interest was to create a copy that was much worse, right? They had no knowledge, no no creativity, and that would have made the God, at least of the Bible, very happy, apparently. Well, I don't know, Lawrence. I mean, if you already knew everything, mm-hmm. you, then you would need no curiosity. Well, in fact... And I think that's his big error. Okay. So he has got, he's made a but, learning machine, two learning machines, uh, and he forgot that they don't know everything... So we forgot to give them curiosity. Oh, but God shouldn't forget these things when he's all-knowing. Yes, I know. He should forget things. <laughs> but, you know, actually, interestingly Anyone enough, with a back problem will uh, tell to, you that God is not perfect. Yeah, absolutely. But you hit on something that is a fascinating argument. It's totally off-field, but it's interesting. People, there's the Fermi paradox of why... We haven't. Why we have been contacted in some ways by mm. by Ellens. and and one of the arguments which I think is quite intriguing is a sufficiently advanced civilization would really have no need to reach out. There's nothing they're going to learn from us. They wouldn't have any interest in us. I mean, that's one possibility. Is that well, they might just contemplate their navels. They might be so self-satisfied that they they might that be, that, uh, and, and that may be one. I mean, one argument. We could argue all day about that, but yeah. I think it's a, there's a there's a quote of yours that I want to read, which is I think re- relevant, and it's not in one of the books, but it's about one of the book about uh, machines like me. The ancient dream of a plausible artificial human might be scientifically useless, and that we've sort of covered but culturally irresistible. At the very least, the quest so far has taught us just how complex we and all creatures are in our simplest actions and modes of being. There's a semi-religious quality to the hope of creating a being less cognitively flawed than we are. And I think that that semi-religious quality, this this sense that 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 we're driven to do that. I, I, you know, I wanted well, to ask you about that. We have all our religions, all our philosophies, all our common sense, all our gossip suggests that we know how to be good. The great problem for us is being good all the time. Now, we're already having seminars in uh, where philosophers are meeting with automobile makers to talk about whether autonomous vehicles should protect the driver mm. against the interests of the pedestrians, say. The very famous problem of, you know, of, of exactly what you, would you, yeah. if you're, would you hit yourself into a wall rather than yeah. not hit a yeah. um, pedestrian. What's interesting about that is whether machines are better at that than us, <laughs> thinking 
through all the options in half a second, clearly they would be, the fact remains that we are now contemplating handing over a fundamentally moral decision to a machine. Shall I swerve and hit the truck or sh- and kill myself, or shall I swerve and hit the person on the, on the pavement? Um, and that seems to me like a civilizational turning point, that we have actually passed some moral decision-making over to a machine. And it's very, very strong in AI military research, mm-hmm. where decisions could be taken, uh, life and death decision- decisions could be taken by machines. So our toe is in the just, we, we've just put a toe in the the Pacific Ocean that lies before us. We have no idea where we're going. We, I mean, the book, this bookshelves and bookstores are already filling with what we should do and what should, but the problem is we're competing now in an open world. And if we ban something in the United States, they'll be doing it in Mexico. And <laughs> We cannot stop ourselves. It's irresistible. So whether um, we can take control of the process or not, well, I, I rather doubt. I rather doubt we can. And I. And by the way, I would now in the modern world, I'd say if they banned something in Mexico, it would happen in the United States. So I'd like to. I'd like to reverse that. But, but the the notion that. I have been very disappointed. I've been part of a number of AI meetings by the notion that I read from sophisticated philosophers that the big challenge is to build in to AI universal human values. And I say, what universal human values? You, you name one that we don't that we don't disobey if they're if they're learning empirically that we don't disobey every day. In fact, most people. If in this driving question, if they're told that the car is going to kill them rather than the pedestrians, they won't want to, because most people, if they hit someone, they'll say, well, I couldn't help it. Yeah. But of course they could help it, but they didn't choose to kill themselves. And it's, a, and, and this notion, so that's just one example of, of, I know of no human, universal human values that would make, would make a machine at least behave like humans. Well, Nature published the results of a huge survey on, um, should you swerve or not? Mm-hmm. And, and fundamentally, the question boils down to um, who are the most valuable human beings? And uh, one group, so it's a three groups, it was a huge planetary research. One group comprised North America and Europe. And there, there was a huge consensus. The most valuable human beings are children. Mm-hmm. In China, the most valuable human beings are old people. Yes. Now, you and I might be thinking, <laughs> finally, there's something about China we really right, love. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. But uh, that would tend to agree with you. On the other hand, I, I think that there are some fundamental notions that, that are almost instinctive in human beings about returning favours, um, of trying to be kind to each other. I mean, I know that people are not generally... Uh, criminal. Here we are, eight million of us in in just you know a couple of thousand acres, and on the whole, it works. Cities are the most extraordinary thing. Um, most people. I've just come from New York. Everyone in this very crowded city in Manhattan yeah. was very friendly and wanted to cook food for me in return for a few dollars and you know, <laughs> give me a nice bed in a hotel, and nobody murdered me. So. I think I, I disagree a little. I, I think there are some pretty fundamental things we could tell robots to do and not do. 
But the trouble is to, to function at the more complex level of social life. Uh, and this comes back to the white lie. Just, the white lie is just a small instance of all the things that would be very difficult. Well, except, well, you know, we, this is an interesting argument, and I think it represents the, the challenge, because yes, of course we like kindness, except then there's kindness for your family versus kindness for uh, a stranger. Mm. And of course, we have genetic predispositions in some sense sure. to be kind to the family, but from a moral perspective, I think we would say, you know, universal kindness, but that's not the way we behave. It's not the evolutionary the way we behave. So that notion of, of, of universal kindness, which sounds good, is not implemented in any real way, well, I think. Well, you know, is it that hard to write the algorithm that says, be kind to the ones you know most and it's a little but is less that, kind? But, would, but would we want to write that algorithm? Well, or well maybe not. I and that's we, what this novel is about. What yeah. if we made a creature who was nicer than us? Well, you actually, there's a quote again from Turing. Um, and again, when Turing is berating the protagonist near the end of the book, he says, so, so knowing not much about the mind, you want to embody an artificial one in social life. Machine learning can only take you so far. You'll need to give this mind some rules to live by. How about a prohibition against lying? Which, of course, mm. is, according to the Old Testament Proverbs, I think, it's an abomination to God. But social life teems with harmless or even unhelpful truths, as you've been saying during our discussion. How do we separate them out? Who's going to write the algorithm for the little white lies that spare the blushes of a friend? Or in the, in the case of the book, or the lie that sends a rapist to prison who will otherwise go free. We don't even yet know how to teach machines to lie. And what about revenge? And I think that this this notion that we probably can't do it is part of the problem. But what I think is so remarkable about the book, for me, is not dealing with that question, which I think ultimately um, anyone who seriously thinks about AI has to recognize that. What I found unique and interesting about the book was not the problem of teaching machines how to lie, it was this question that so dominates the discussion now, which is how are humans going to adapt to having machines? How are we going to adapt to having super intelligences? How is it going to destroy human society? We could talk about that. But what I find so fascinating about, about your book is how are the machines going to adapt? The, the central thing that I found so fascinating is that, is that the machines essentially, and I don't... Uh, they have a. Pro I don't want to give away things, but they, they get depressed. I mean, live, being given this universal set of rules for how to behave, and then observing a human society in which they live, in which those rules aren't manifest, mm. they don't. They don't try and. Well, to some extent, the the robot does in one particular case try and change the behavior of an individual, but instead they just become depressed and turn inward and decide they don't want to live in such a in such yeah, a world. They, they start turning themselves off. And Turing lists all the kind of abominations um, and curable diseases that we live with and the destruction of the planet, even as we say we love it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and this little cohort of 25 Adams and Eves can no longer live with those contradictions and close themselves down one by one. I mean, we find ourselves difficult to live with yes. uh, on one level. And, um, well, that comes if, back to that and if we And if we make uh, humans better than us, uh, artificial humans better than us, then they are going to have to either be imbued with some sort of algorithm of profound insensitivity that would get them through the day, or we need to just set them free from the human mind altogether. Um at one point, for example, 
the narrator, Charlie, is talking to Miranda about Adam writing literature. And she says, well, you know, uh, he says, but, you know, they're never going to reach that level you know, of human understanding and empathy. So, you know, when we read them, we'll find them incomprehensible. And she, and she says, yeah, but who's talking about humans reading them? <laughs> they might want to write for each other. You know, uh, so... That, and that's the that's a, you know that's what's fascinating. I think people don't think of the interesting aspect of how fascinating it will be if we ever had such a thing to see a different intelligence. And and, and we read and we we here discuss these dystopic this dystopian views of the future with hmm. with robots, Terminator or whatever else. But in fact, there, there's no doubt. I think, and it's happening as AI becomes more a part of human life, it will change our lives. But that's okay. Yeah. And as a physicist, what I'm most interested in is what physics questions would an AI find interesting, because it could be entirely different ones. And of course, if it was a an AI based on quantum computers, as Feynman used to say, then you know, then it would have an intuitive understanding of quantum mechanics, which is totally mm-hmm. different than us because we don't yeah. we're not based yeah. on quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics could become common sense. Yeah. That's why I, that's why I think there must be a trillion billion ways of being having a consciousness. And that's why I think if we work, just to come back to this point about curiosity and whether an alien civilization would be interested in us, th- I think they'd be interested in us in the way that we're interested in ants and uh, other people are experts on uh, mm-hmm. you know, tropical cockroaches. Uh, we, we would be, I think, still a matter of, uh, of curiosity. Yeah. Well, it's nice to think we might be. Maybe. But, you know, I mean, maybe um, we're living alongside octopuses which are served up in squids Mm -hmm. which have far more intelligence or consciousness or even possibly even self-awareness and we're routinely i've ever since i read other minds that book about squid i've stopped eating them i cannot i can no longer eat a squid there's that and and i don't know if you've seen the famous uh there's a video of this of 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 an octopus in uh in a a laboratory in in a school that figures out it's on the water that figures out how to get out of the crate and finds and finds a hole to be able to go back into the water and it's really it is if you read that it's kind of hard to to imagine so would we even recognize another consciousness well that's that would we recognize it and would it be so bad for us to recognize that we would learn more about ourselves by seeing the different possibilities of existence. Mm. The example I want to use, and it's one I, I, I've written about, I haven't published, is, is um, this notion that because it's going to change everything, the world will become awful because computers won't be emotional, there won't be this or that. And, and I go back, and I think it's probably important, relevant to talk to you about this, to writing. Plato and those of his time decided that writing was going to destroy storytelling. Mm. That the in, that the introduction of the, of the written word would destroy because of course you'd have to stop memorizing you'd you'd stop thinking about things you'd write them down and and that writing would destroy storytelling well it's, it 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 changed it dramatically but I I mm. think you'd agree that that writing hasn't hurt storytelling it's hurt our memories we're not as good at memorizing great chunks in the way that whatever Homer was. Um, could once narrate. I've just come from Iceland, where there's you know, a huge tradition, now more or less dead, uh, in which very ordinary people who hadn't been had much schooling could narrate vast sagas. But yeah, so of course, it, but it, that's a change. You're right. We we our memories, and in fact, people are saying it's much worse now that when Pete can't remember more than 200 words with Twitter, and and or even yeah. read more than 200 words. 
But at the same time, it's a trade-off. It's a different world. Yeah. But I'm very happy to live in a world where I can read Ian McEwan mm. because if I if I didn't if I didn't come to see you in, in such a world, I wouldn't I wouldn't get to read the, those stories. But it's a change that's irresistible. Yeah. I mean, because the advantages are too too pressing. So, I mean, all around us now, I've heard, for example, parents discussing whether they should be teaching their children to say thank you and please to Siri. Mm-hmm. or Alexa or whatever yeah, you call yeah. it. What is the politesse? I wrote a story before to, of, to limber up before I started writing Machines Like Me, looking 300 years ahead to a time of where we did finally have these absolutely conscious, totally plausible beings. You could not tell them apart from humans. So science fiction has been there forever. And you could imagine a point where political correctness might be called, or just politeness, that it would be very rude to say to someone, are you real? (laughs) Because you fully accept that they have a consciousness, that they are subjective. Mm -hmm. So it would be really like saying to someone over dinner, I hear you've had a colostomy. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, know, this is an intrusive question. Yes, yes. Then you wouldn't know whether the Prime Minister was... Uh, you know, made in Solingen in the Ruhr (laughs) or not, or whether the last person to win Wimbledon or the last 20 people to win the men's singles Mm -hmm. uh, was was made in Japan. Uh, And it would just be a matter of uh, profound impoliteness. And the story is really about a man, he's fallen in love with this girl. She's so beautiful, he's so hopelessly in love. And he says, and mid-coitus, he says, I'm just, I'm sorry, but I've got to ask you. (laughs) Are you real? And the rest of the story is really looping round to get to her answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's... And it, by the way, the moment she tells him, it's so exciting uh-huh. that he comes. Because <laughs> well, the, the, the otherness of her just fills him with pleasure. Well, and Well, that's the point. The otherness, I think, is not a th- always a threat. No. It's, it, it, it changes things. Forever, and there's no going back. No, we can't but, control but this. We can't it. control it, but it, but it's part of the it's part of the fascination of of living is that there's a future that that may be completely different, but it's it's something that is not necessarily in a in a in an objective sense better or worse. One of the futures that entertains me is our assumption that artificial humans have to be shaped more or less like artificial <laughs> the same size. So uh, the Oxford professor of future studies summoned up a future where we have quantum computing. The optimum size for being is three millimeters. So you come back here in 10,000 years and you think, where is everyone? (laughs) And you look down. It's teeming because you could support maybe 60 trillion such beings. All connected. Humans are long distant memory. And they might think fondly of us and they have absolutely, they know all about us, but we're gone. And there's just this seething world of three yeah, millimeter beings. It would be logical. And in fact, it, it, there's a logic to that. When people, it always amazes me in science fiction, when people talk about the future of humanity. I mean, when people talk about, you know, Elon mm. Musk moving us to Mars or whatever, but, but in the long term, moving to the stars, this notion that we're going to send humans to the stars is just ridiculous because mm. we're these 200 pound bags of water that are yeah. not well designed for space, the optimum yeah. intelligence. And so that if if our civilization in whatever 
general sense use that, the collective knowledge and wisdom or lack thereof of humanity, does permeate into the future, it's not going to do it by humans uh, into space. It's going to be, because there, space, and much more than on Earth, mass is is at a premium. And it's much, in fact, it's much more sensible to send a small robot to another planet and then take ingredients, even if you want to rebuild humans, take ingredients uh, on the planet. Only as long as the robot wants to go. Yeah. Exactly, and, and, and enthusiastically consensus. And, and the discussion we're having here, Lawrence, is as if we're discussing the afterlife. Yeah. We, we ain't going to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know. But, well, let, let's end this part, because we could go on for this forever, but there's one line that Turing says in your book, which I find fascinating, is that about consciousness. He says, the mind in science is little more than a fashion parade. I often tell say to people that the more we understand something, the fewer books there are on it. I mean, you, in the sense that you only have to write one book on quantum mechanics or Dirac, you know, I mean, at some level. But there, there's a new book on consciousness every two weeks. Yeah. And, and, it's, and I'm always amazed at, at that there's so many books, and be, specifically because we understand it so little. So it is so far in the future. I don't think anyone, maybe you've obviously read more on this in, pro, in preparation for, for yeah. this last book. But I don't know if anyone has a good definition of consciousness. Half the people writing about consciousness say it doesn't exist. Yeah. It's one of the most extraordinary statements in philosophy that you can imagine. (laughs) My friend Galen Strawson, philosopher, I'm very fond of what he writes, says consciousness is about the only thing we do know. You know, it's the thing we know best. (laughs) Your own consciousness. Your own. You live inside it. I'm not sure a definition is, well, you could talk about, you know, a functioning organism moving this way and that way and arranging its future through procreation or whatever. But we know what it's like to have one. Yeah, but we, but you're, but the, the point you made earlier, we don't, we, we delude ourselves so efficiently that I'm not sure we're aware of our consciousness. We're aware of what we think we, we our consciousness is doing, but, but you, probably you, the underlying yeah. operation of it is, is, is totally remote. A- anyone who said, you know, where's my pen? I mean, you could spend three quarters of the day unconscious, but yes. you can bring it to mind. It's a miracle. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's worth writing about. And I'm glad you write about it in different ways. Let me go back. I wanna. I wanna talk about the. We've already hit one one theme, which I want to go back to, is that we're deficient because we know what we should be. But the other was that I've I thought about in all your books compared to other that I read is the life of the mind. So much in of your plot. And it's not that there isn't action, because there certainly is. But so much of your plots, when I read them and read them all together, involve the person thinking themselves about what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. Much of the of the plot development occurs in the mind of the protagonists and not in the actions that they do. Again, is that I find it in 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 almost all of your books that I've read anyway, that that, that plays a very important role. And and uh, sometimes in the delusions of the mind, of, of convincing mm. oneself, uh, you know, in Amsterdam, of convincing oneself that, you know, the need constantly to puff oneself up, up if you're a, a, a musician and you have to convince yourself you're wonderful to, in order to write the next symphony. But uh, again, is that is that conscious? It, it, well, it seems- um, that same musician, that composer then goes hiking in the Lake District. Um, and just as he's thinking of the theme for this great symphony he's writing, he sees a woman being attacked mm-hmm. and he does not intervene. So I want to have the life of the mind, but I want action and I want action placed within. Some it's that contrast to the two. I guess mm-hmm. it's, a, it's that it's that. Exactly. It's the, but it's the contrast of thinking versus act. I'm not saying there isn't action. It's that, con- it's that 
sometimes cognitive dissonance, that mm. distinction between what one's thinking about why one's doing it and why one actually and, and the things one actually does, which are often the other the other aspect that I find uh, also remarkable is how in a number of your books, how accidents, small accidents, which often aren't conscious, which mm. are literally accidents, have a profound impact on a person's life, whether it's accidentally taking in the atonement, taking the wrong letter, uh, yeah. and or there's so many there's so many accidents that happen, and and they, and I again I, I wanted to ask you about that. But well, we are the products of such accidents. Yes, your mother decided not to stay in and wash her hair. She went to the dance. <laughs> she met your dad, and you know the very small probability of you. Uh, was set in motion. So life is packed with with this. Practically everyone we know we met by accident. Um, one of the great interests and fulcrums in literature, uh, and, you, and many operas are about this, are the tension between an arranged marriage, parents looking for social status and matching or religious beliefs, and romantic love. Mm -hmm. Someone meets someone by accident, the parents are fighting against such accidents because they want they have a scheme of, into the future of preserving wealth or, or whatever within the family and it's become one of the most powerful plots especially in opera you know, interesting the heroine meets a young man he looks poor but of course because he's got moral qualities he's also a prince you know that that has to be covered and uh, the parents resist, the father especially, the jealous father who won't let his beautiful daughter marry the wrong man. Very, very powerful story. And it's like the human struggle against accident. Well, you know, that's right. But I think, again, there's, an, you know, an evolutionary basis of that, right? Because mm. as a scientist, I often tell people that, the and it was Feynman who influenced me this, but, but you know, we, we don't want to think... We want to think that everything that happens to us is special, when most of the time it's not special at all. We assign purpose to things, which is one of the reasons we have religion. And of course, there's this utility to it, because often in a survival sense, you suffer less by assuming there's purpose to the leaves rustling than, than mm. you know, that there's something there that's dangerous. And one of the hardest things for humans to do, at, at least as a scientist, is to recognize the things that happen to us are not significant they're accidents yeah and because we we want it to be we want there to be purpose we want there to be specialness there could be great utility to romantic love mm -hmm. imagine a, a super rational being deciding when to fall in love it would be like the old problem of a hundred hotels you know and you you are making yeah. a journey yeah. well yeah. we know it's 37 the 37th hotel or whatever it is yeah um, or you rate the first three best ones and you take the next one that's better than those first three. <laughs> a wonderful matter. So a super rational being wondering about falling in love would always think, well, yeah, well, so she was great, um, but I better wait for the next one. <laughs> yeah. So there's a marvellous randomness. You cannot predict who's going to fall in love. And yes. so a whole literatures are devoted, not only to the resistance of parents, but to the accidental nature of two people between whom some sort of chemistry, which they cannot resist, nor did they choose. And yet they're operating in a, in a world of choice. They would then make that decision to defy, you know, so Romeo and Juliet 
you know, hero lovers, star-crossed lovers across a, a, a divide of enmity in the city. Will it triumph or will it be crushed? Well, it's crushed, um, but great poetry um, flows from it. So endlessly, uh, novelists take charge of all these coincidences, running them side by side with a sort of plausibly created world, which we can sort of mm-hmm. believe in. But they take that role of the of, of a godlike control of of um, of coincidence arranging coincidence at the same time as withholding information or leaking the wrong information mm-hmm. or giving the impression of one thing leads to a conclusion that, that's un- ultimately betrayed or, or confounded or whatever. So just to come back to, and, and Richard Dawkins has written yeah. about this marvellously, about you know the chance of you being you. Yeah, sure. This this connection of CAGT is, yeah. you know, is so unlikely and rests on, unless, you know, it's a cousin marriage which your parents have arranged. <laughs> yeah. You know. yeah. But even then, they don't know what recombination is going to get you out of these two cousins. And we know the harm, you know, um, cumulative cousin marriages cause. So uh, that friction between the intention of the novelist trying to recreate chance when it's impossible, you're in yeah. control of chance, is one of the great engines of motor. So to come back to what you were saying to me about the life of the mind and the life of um, of action, it's very hard to decide what to think about. As someone famously said, the mind has a mind of its own. <laughs> you walk down the street, you, you say, well, I'm going to think about this piece I'm going to write. But soon, you know, <laughs> something drifts across your mind, a bit of sexual desire, <laughs> a bit of hunger, uh, some sound sets off another thought. The randomness of thought, or the, the slight useful uncontrollability of thought, is probably necessary to all the kinds of inventions we've had in literature and science, all those parallel investigations of what is. And that's something we touched on earlier I want to come back to. Why did I decide literature and not science? I I think they are parallel pursuits. They have different methods, different confirmations, but they are still driven by a wish to understand either the natural world or human nature or the human condition or what it's like to live in modernity. Um, this is the pursuit. And it almost doesn't matter whether what you pursue. Absolutely. It's as if you could take a stone and put it on the, the accumulated can of human knowledge. You can put a novelist stone on, you can put a physicist stone on, uh, but putting the stone there is, is is the important thing. Well, and and the fact uh, that you can enjoy both. But point is, as a, and and I actually, you've written about in, in a number of your books. There's this question of the science versus humanities, and and we have this bias in our society that I, it's that it, as a scientist, it's fine for me to read literature and that and 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 I can enjoy it, but. But it doesn't always work the other way around. That some people don't find that that that, that there are those parallel tracks. And I want to, but there's one question before we get there. I can't resist asking, which is these accidents, which are the engine and, and the fact that we can't control what's happening to us and what we're thinking about, which is the engine of literature. Certainly, your literature, but literature in general, is when it comes to machines like me, the fact that we don't understand probabilities, that we don't think of probabilistically as humans, is essential to to 
the way we behave, whereas an artificial intelligence would presumably think probabilistically and might ask this question, well, is it okay, to, is it reasonable to be in love with this person when in fact, given the probabilities of what I'm doing, it's quite likely I'll meet a better person or, or, or you know, there's so many probabilities of what, what risks we don't take, we, that we, that we um, you know, that we'll smoke a cigarette with abandon, but we won't, we'll, we'll want to make sure we go through a, a metal detector at an airport when the, when the, the relative risk is much greater of one than the other. Hmm that it, it would be interesting to see what the literature of, of a species or a, a thinking being that thinks probabilistically would be, whether they could, they could have that kind of engine that's driven by, the, by our misunderstanding of the, of the role of accidents in life. I, I think that that... Uh, and, and well, one, you, well, okay, let's just stay with that for a moment, Lawrence. The creatures we make will have no evolutionary past, okay? yes. and we do. Mm-hmm. And us not thinking probabilistically clearly has utility. I mean, otherwise we'd yes. be thinking problems. Yeah, yeah so obviously. It's, prob- it's the best way to go, what we have, um, or it's the least bad way to go. But there must be cumulative utility over thousands of generations. And we can observe it in the the utility functions of animals, sure. foraging and so on, yeah. how a bee makes decisions, as it were, for roots from the hive to, to various good places. Even a even a, a bacterium like E. coli is making sort of optimal choices that are f- you know finely weathered by by evolution. And the creatures we make will not have that past. Except they will have a future. And that's the interesting yeah, question. Yeah. And and so if they're learning they'll be at least evolvable. Yeah. If not adaptable. Well, and, they and, will evolve maybe by taking over their own invention. And, and well, all, all likely, and what amazes me is that if eventually, it, and I think this is in the long term, if human, if intelligence is going to survive, I don't expect it to be in bodies like us in the long run, perhaps. But I find it fascinating to think that those, that in the, if that happens in the far future, the, there'll be a debate about intelligent design versus versus evolution, and and of course they will have been inte- intelligently designed. We're discussing as, the afterlife again. Yeah, it's, um, right, it's true. But, as, as Adam says, people who believe in the afterlife never discover that they're wrong. Um, and Charlie, the narrator, is very dismissive of this. You think that's profound, but for Adam, it is profound. Well, you know it. it it, it, it's profound. It, it finding that you're wrong is is again. You've got to be conscious. There's got to be an afterlife to find that you're wrong. Well, well, so if well, there's no, no afterlife, no. you have no. You never know. No, but that. But being wrong as a human is is as you just mm. said is is an essential part of living. No, but to be wrong as a dead human. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, that, there has to be an afterlife. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if there isn't one, those who believe in afterlife will never know their mistake. Well, and that's those that's only... the argument that that's the argument that's often used. Well, why does it hurt you to believe in it? Because if it's yeah. not there. And, and but I, we are the only ones who will know our mistake. Well, yeah, but, it, the, but atheists who discover that there's an afterlife will be able to say I was wrong. But <laughs> believers will never have that pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But but the, by the same token, people say, well, why you know, it, it, why not believe in it? Because if it's not there, it's not a problem. And the problem yeah. is, it impacts on our behavior yeah. now. The, the, yeah, but that's like saying you got a headache. I say well, I've got a very nice placebo for you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Have a placebo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, uh, the other aspect that I found fascinating about your literature is that there are usually three protagonists, not two, and it's either and a lot of times it's scorned lovers. Speaking of the accident of falling off, 
the 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 accident of falling in love, which of course, and often one finds out that there one can be in love with many people, and it often produces in, interesting drama, as it does in your books. But you know, at a child in time, there's a husband and wife, but the friend, in atonement, there's the two romantic leads and the sister. In Amsterdam, there's the two lovers and the and the and the dead woman. In the Children's Act, there's the hu- husband, the wife, and the child who's who's involved in the legal proceedings. Uh, I, I could keep going on, and every every time I find this kind of triad, which makes it more, which makes the accents of existence, um, it propels that. That, and again, I'm wondering if that's conscious or, or or not. No, I've never thought of it in these terms, and I'm pretty sure I could come up with a number five, like <laughs> <Yeah>. a, <laughs> or seven. But I find um, it interesting that that it, it propels it because there's always because two people, even though they can't control their lives. Mm-hmm. And two people can do a pretty good job of not controlling their lives very well. When you add a third, it adds that extra. Sure. One of the oldest plots is a stable situation. Could be two people, could mm-hmm. be a village. And a stranger appears. Someone enters the scene. I mean, famously, Pride and Prejudice, as a you know, wealthy young man moved into the neighborhood, Mrs. Bennett. Sort of, yeah. So into the love affair is projected, you know, um, Something that's going to, someone who's going to disrupt the whole situation. So I think that that is quite fundamental to to many many plots. Well, considering disruption and the fact that um, I was read that you used to be called the in macabre, but but the notion that there are fundamental problems. There, I, there was a a commencement address uh, that I don't know whether it's apocryphal and people think mm. it's Kurt Vonnegut, but he mm. doesn't where, and I've given two commencement addresses, but I always wanted to have the courage to start this way. But he said, things are going to get unimaginably worse and they're never, ever going to get better again, mm. which I thought was a wonderful way of, of introducing young people to their future, perhaps at least getting to think about it. But being wrong about the present and the future is relevant when we're trying to make a society better and not worse. And there are two aspects I want to close with, because one of them relates to the most recent book you just produced, which is Cockroach, where where it's clear um, that we can make society worse in an organized way. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, in that that book, there's a quote um, which says, it was the defining principle of an open society that everything was lawful unless there was law against it. Beyond Europe's eastern borders in Russia, China, and all the totalitarian states of the world, everything was illegal unless the state sanctioned it. I'm wondering with the notion of what's happening with political correctness in in the West right now, whether we're moving from that notion, a democratic notion of an open society, to exactly the point that everything is forbidden unless specifically sanctioned. That we are afraid to do anything, to say things, um, to to openly question things because of the impact of the strong pressure from the internet and 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 the backlash. So I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I I'm sort of partly sympathetic with that notion, but it, sometimes I think it could be the exact r- reverse. We're living through a strange form of sexual revolution. Let's just just keeping the sexual field for a moment, mm-hmm. in which I don't know about you, but I've been to half a dozen gay marriages now yeah. and they're so completely taken for granted yeah, absolutely and they're just as boring as straight marriages <laughs> and the, the priest is a woman and the sermon is just as boring as it used to be <laughs> and delivered by a man but there is this extraordinary 
uh, embrace and tolerance that would have been inconceivable in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And it is a brilliant development. It's opened up. So in its wake comes all kinds of other ways of being sexually. Mm -hmm. They are fighting and, 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 you know, transsexuals, all fighting for their space. And we are in a kind of early stage of development where they are so emphatic about making their corners and their spaces that they are patrolling the boundaries of what is correct to be said with a kind of emphasis that I think in 20 years will have vanished, completely vanished. And it'll be like the famous bar scene in Star Wars, <laughs> you know, that there'll be every kind of sexual expression completely tolerated and no one will be bothered by it. Well, it's nice to see you have such an yeah. optimistic view of I, the future. I, I have quite an optimistic view. What happened to gays and thinking yeah. back, you know, you, to Turing's you, time. You, you sure. Um, the speed of it. It's uh, its remarkable. I could never have guessed it no. 10 years ago no. that we'd... It, and, it, and I think that my feeling is that it happens with such speed because of... And maybe that's why this young people's movement for the climate will be something. When I yeah. saw people my daughter's age... It, they knew gay people, and for them it was nothing. I realized it didn't matter what the Supreme Court did or yeah. sixty-year-old white men. Yeah, yeah. It was already a done deal. The yeah. next generation couldn't see it; they just had no understanding. And so, I maybe, maybe the next generation, yeah. although maybe it's going to be, they're going to suffer because of what's happening. That maybe this climate quote-unquote debate that's happening will just be. Yeah, uh, well, I, I really it. hope so um, because it needs such a profound transformation. But uh, smoking is an amazing yeah. thing. I mean, the, the transformation there. I was never a smoker. Uh, I always hated it, but I could never say it because uh, it was unmanly yes. you know, to yeah. even complain about it. Uh, and when Christopher Hitchens was still alive, and he's a very heavy smoker, okay. and he started complaining about how the, you know, the walls were closing in on him. I said, we got you bastards on the run. <laughs> Finally, now you're smoking huddled in street corners outside <laughs> buildings and you're the pariahs i said i was the pariah right. <laughs> now it's your turn <laughs> okay so speaking, there's one revolution well there's so speaking it's not revolution. all bad i want to end not uh, everything is getting worse no no absolutely although let me end with 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 your new book which which, uh, which the cockroach which is just coming out which uh, which fascinates me when i first went i mean the first sentence of course one thinks kafka Hmm. And it's the and it's it's a um, a reversivist Kafka. It's exactly what 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 your what the the, the economic philosophy hmm. uh, uh, of people in this book is. It's the exact opposite of Kafka. Yes, it's a reverse. But it's a it's a comment on what's happening. And since you're so optimistic, I want to read this quote. Ask you to comment on it, and then and then we can go to dinner. How does that sound? Um, it's this it's this former cockroach who's become. Um, a human body for a while now, talking to his friends. He says, as our Latin name, Latodia, suggests, we are creatures that shun the light. We understand and love the dark. In recent times, these past 200,000 years, we've lived alongside humans and have learned their peculiar taste for that darkness, to which they are not as fully committed as we are. But whenever it is predominant in them, so we have flourished. Where they've embraced poverty, filth, squalor, we've grown in strength. And by torturous means and much experiment and failure, we've come to know the preconditions for such human ruin. 
war and global warming certainly, and in peacetime, immovable hierarchies, concentrations of wealth, deep superstition, rumor, division, distrust of science, of intellect, of strangers, and of social cooperation. You know the list. In the past, we have lived through great adversities, including the construction of sewers, the repulsive taste for clean water, the elaboration of the germ theory of disease, peaceful accord between nations. We have indeed been diminished by these and many other depredations, but we have fought back. And now I hope and believe that we've set in train the conditions of a renaissance and <laughs> towards darkness. So for an optimist, I thought that this book was an interesting, an interesting take on that. So why don't you have the last word? Okay, remember, they're not humans are not as fully committed yeah. to the darkness <laughs> as the cockroaches. So, you know, it's not all so bad. And, well, this is a stirring speech. He's just about to lead uh, the whole cabinet, who are still in cockroach, no, are now <laughs> back in back cockroach, cockroach form, form, and they're going to walk back to the House of Parliament. Um, uh, mission accomplished, basically. Mm. They yes. have got us out of the um, EU, as it were. Yeah. Although, actually, what they've done is... Um, announced a whole new form of finance and economics and the organization of society. It's called reversalism, and money simply flows in the opposite yes, direction. I tried very hard to think up something as completely pointless as Brexit, and I think I probably failed. <laughs> well, so in reversalism, you go to work, you've got to pay for your job, but you go to the shops, you get... Yeah. Uh, take away goods, you take away the money with it, and with that money, you pay for your job. And lots follows from that. Uh, a complete nonsense, but not as absurd as turning our backs on 76 trade deals that we have around the world, which we're going to walk away from, and cooperation in science, in agriculture, security, which we will work for the next 25 years painfully, painstakingly to re-establish, both with the EU and around the world. For what? It's just, it, as the cliche goes, it boggles the mind. Uh, you know, it, it is completely absurd. No one anymore in Britain is making an economic argument for it. It's become mystical. People now just want it. They say, we cannot wait any longer. We've got to have it. It's become like a religion, a religious fervor for something that everyone knows will make us a little worse off, maybe catastrophically worse, or we don't really know, but it'll become drearier. We will cut ourselves off from many things. Uh, we will have to slowly allow students back in because universities need the money from foreign students. So science can't run without a free flow of people. Our agriculture, someone's got to pick our strawberries. Our national health service needs a huge influx of immigrants. We will have not solved anything about immigration our sovereignty which people really care about well what's not told is every trade deal is a compromise with sovereignty our membership of nato is a compromise with sovereignty and so is um, our, our signature on the international treaty on the seabed or the good friday agreement i mean if you fall in love and marry you've for the sake of happiness, you've compromised, compromised some bit of your own personal sovereignty. If you decide to have children, which is, you know, for me, one of the greatest happenings in life, you sacrifice enormous amount of personal freedom. And so it is with nations. We are deeply connected 
Uh, and as the cockroaches know, uh, the more connected we are, the less chance they have to thrive. So Brexit, I think, is a greater folly than reversalism. Well, that's why it's uh, the, one of the other reasons this book is so brilliant and why you're writing is so brilliant. And for me to take it back to what you said at the very beginning, uh, something we both desperately agree about, this, the connection between science and culture, that if the purpose of science is to force us to reevaluate our place in the cosmos, that's also the purpose of literature. And that's what, with this book and all your books, you do so well. I could talk to you for 10 hours. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Dinner time. Okay, dinner time. Thanks. The Origins Podcast is produced by Lawrence Krauss, Nancy Dahl, John and Don Edwards, Gus and Luke Holwerda, and Rob Zepps. Audio by Thomas Amison. Web design by Redmond Media Lab. Animation by Tomahawk Visual Effects and music by Rickolis. To see the full video of this podcast, as well as other bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash origins podcast. <laughs>